I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, life's journey takes us in many directions. Some are wonderful and others we'd rather forget. But renowned Buddhist teacher and psychologist Tara Brock offers a different perspective. Rather than when it's difficult thinking something bad's happening, it's getting in the way of my life or my spiritual path, actually trusting that whatever arises actually becomes grist, actually can help to cultivate more compassion. And then Sharon Salzberg on how a trip to India changed her life. The professor was talking about the Buddha and talking about suffering. You know, rather than finding that depressing or demoralizing in some way, I found it incredibly invigorating. It felt like maybe the first time in my life somebody was saying to me, you're not so weird. It's not just you. This is a part of the human conditions. It was almost like the first time I truly felt like I belonged. How two of America's most revered teachers found peace through the Buddhist path. That's coming up on Life Examined. This week, we're going to hear two personal stories of transformation through Buddhism. They're stories that I think each of us can relate to. Difficult childhoods, abandonment, not feeling comfortable in our own skin, and being unsure of where life is going. We'll start with Tara Brock, who's one of my favorite teachers, partially because we both share an interest in psychology and how that relates to Buddhist philosophy. Buddhism, at its core, is psychological. It puts into focus questions of desire, attachment, and suffering— It also presents us with an honest understanding of our minds and how we spend so much of our time thinking about past and future and struggle to stay in the present. Brock holds a PhD in clinical psychology and has spent dozens of years studying Buddhism and meditation. Her books include titles like Radical Acceptance, True Refuge, and most recently, Trusting the Gold. But like so many, Brock's path to getting where she is today wasn't an easy one. Well, Tara Brock, it's such a pleasure to have you on Life Examined. Welcome. Oh, I'm I'm happy to be with you. I I want to talk about uh, some of the the earlier experiences you had in your life, and I and I wonder when you go back and think about the earlier Tara and and questions you were sitting with and where they would eventually take you. What were you referencing? I'd love for you to take us there. Yeah, sure. Well. I'd say the culmination of the earlier Tara and what she was wrestling with was uh, in college when I was uh, filled with self-doubt. I was in what I call the trance of unworthiness, uh, really um, down on myself for a lot of things. I remember one friend, uh, we went for a hike and she was talking about being her own best friend. And I realized I was so far from that. I mean, the harsh inner critic really had a had a grip on me and mm. whether it had to do with you know my my weight or my way of doing relationships or as a daughter or a friend everything so that was one element jonathan was just kind of being relentlessly down on myself yeah. and another one was i was um very active in terms of political, social justice, you know, it was very much active. And um, so on, on weekends, I'd, I'd go to these meetings and rallies and, and, it, was, and it, was, it was pretty intense. I mean, there was a lot of sense of a, a bad other out there, an enemy that we were fighting against. And then I started going to yoga classes, which I was doing on Tuesday nights, and oh my gosh, it was, you know, peaceful and, you know, relaxed and easy. And I remember one particular occasion, and it was in the spring, because I remember walking outside in the fragrance of the fruit trees mm. right after class and stopping. And in that pause, realizing that my body and my mind were in the same place at the same time. And there was a kind of, uh, in that stillness and presence, there was a real joy and a, re- a sense of belonging to everything. And I realized, you know, I want to see the world change. And this is the consciousness that it, it needs to come out of, this quality of caring and connection, not out of a sense of, uh, you know, we have an enemy out there that we need to vanquish. So um, that between my own war with myself and sensing the futility of trying to end social injustice and war with more anger and hatred, I decided to move into an ashram and a spiritual community and do some really deep inner practice. Mm. 
I, I want to stay with that line. My, my body and my mind were in the same place at the same time. Can you, can you take us there? What, what was that like? Why was that so important? Most of the time, I and most people I know are in a kind of trance where we're li it's a virtual world. You know, most if we scan just today and say, where have we been? Most of the time, our awareness is filtered through thoughts. We're living in future or the past. I was preparing to to do this interview. I was having tech glitches. My mind was, you know, spinning in circles. I wasn't as much, ah, breathe, feel my body, feel what's here. And it's rare when we really get that this is it, this, this very moment, it's all we really have. And that our whole awareness of our body and mind is right here. We're usually fragmented. And when we do come together, when we do arrive fully, there's a sense of um, spaciousness, mm. quietness, stillness, and it's exquisitely tender because then I'm, even as I'm speaking, I'm feeling it grows in me. And then I just, then there's the feeling that you and I and the trees I'm seeing outside are really all part of one, one universe, one awareness. And that's delicious. That's, that's a sense of belonging that really brings peace. Hmm. It's interesting that you, you were so, so engaged politically fighting the evils of the world. And then your response was to take an internal journey, not to, you know, run for the Senate or keep fighting and protesting. And although I sense there, there is a protester in your heart when all these things are raging around us, but you, you went to a place of solitude. Can you, can you say more about that? Yeah. And your intuition is completely right on. I, I continue to be very, very active uh, mm -hmm. and engaged in the causes that really are um, very alive for me. And I knew that to serve our world the best, I really needed to be uh, more intimate with my inner life. I needed to be able to embrace the my inner world so that I would be coming from really a place of, of an, a full intelligence and compassion and not reactivity. And you know what I've seen through the years is that, and this is just Marx's, you know, social activism in general, is that the activism that is really defined by a sense of hate and anger, um, it just sows the seeds of the very thing it's protesting. In, in the Buddhist tradition they say that Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And I've just seen this. I've seen it in individual relationships that it doesn't, there's no evolving and deepening when we are living identified with hate and blame. And so it just felt really important to take the time to become more deeply aware of that. And it has affected me a lot because I, I now it's a regular part of my practice. And I'll, this, you know, just is moving into current times, very distressing. It's like I have never seen such a level of distrust uh, and dividedness ever, you know, in our world. And I see it in me all the time. Every day, Jonathan, I will to the degree I t let myself and choose to take in news, I'll feel myself creating a bad other. Mm. And then what I'll do, and this is because of the, the practices over the years of mindfulness and compassion and getting in touch with myself, is I'll make what I call a U-turn, which is instead of blaming the bad other, I'll bring the attention back to, okay, so what, what feels so bad inside me? And usually I'll find that underneath my anger and blame is uh, fear. I'm afraid for more suffering to be caused by um, these policies or these attitudes or whatever it is I'm upset about. And then if I keep paying attention, underneath the fear is a kind of grieving for, for the pain in our world. 
and and embedded in that is care. Mm. And if I can make that transition from an angry blaming of other to that care, then I can go ahead and be completely active. But it's coming from a lot more clarity, and it actually has more. I'm more empowered. Actually, I'm. I'm responding, not reacting. Yeah. There's so much of what you're saying that we could, we could talk about in the present moment, um, in in the news in the last year, and, and yet I, I I also want to keep following your journey as a person because um, you would of course have become a, a very well regarded Buddhist teacher and meditation teacher, but. You studied clinical psychology, uh, which is which is uh, the Western tradition of understanding how we think and why we think. You you've sat with clients as a therapist, and I and I wonder what what drew you towards connecting some of these Western ideas and these Eastern ideas. Well, the draw to both of them is because there's some deep knowing that we have to bring into awareness what we're not aware of. Hmm. And they both serve that. And there's a, Joseph Campbell has a wonderful image of a circle and it has a line drawn through it. And he says that whatever's below the line is outside of awareness, whatever is above the line is included. And meditation helps to move the line. So Hmm. more is in awareness. And so does Western practices of psychotherapy but they're very they're very synergistic and not all of them are there's some some that don't really fit but many are and i found that buddhist psychology and the buddhist practices of mindfulness and compassion being mindful of what's here and deepening that attentiveness to really sense what we might not be paying attention to and holding it with kindness really serves the whole therapy process. And in therapy, having someone else hold a container and help to guide us past the storyline into like what really is the, is the nub of what, where the wound is, mm. is very much, you know, then becomes the grist for meditation. So they, they can work together beautifully. I've heard you say before that most of us have a hard time letting in love. And, um, you know, I, I see this on the program. I see it in my own work, uh, sitting with clients as a therapist. But I, I wonder if you could go a little bit further with that. Yeah, it's one of those things that when we start seeing it in ourselves, mm. we start really seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we, start, we start realizing, wow, I conceptually know that, you know, Jonathan likes me, you know, and I'm talking about you or talking about my husband, whatever. Sure. I know that conceptually, but can I let in warmth? You know, can I really let it in? And we find that there's actually a armoring that most of us have because most of us have a, a fear of being seen, a fear of being, we want, we want to be seen, but we're also afraid of it. We're afraid the parts of ourselves we don't like will be seen. And we're afraid we'll get rejected for that. And we don't really trust in a deep way our goodness, that we're lovable. That's the core. And if we don't trust that we're intrinsically lovable, then we don't trust that other people's love is for real. Either they don't really get it or they're faking, mm-hmm. you know. And, and it's safer to protect ourselves from that than get hoodwinked, to open up our defenses and let it in and then get that pain of uh, then being rejected, then being found flawed. Mm. Does that resonate for you? It, it does. And the reason I was so kind of interested in that is that I think that one way that, that you know, people can experience love is, is through meditation or through, through psychotherapy. And in both of those cases, there's almost... And I've heard you use this word before. There's almost a reparenting that happens, or or a different sense of of letting in through yourself, through another. And I, I, I've always found that to be a very powerful process in either of those two cases. I'm right there with you. Um, I call it spiritual reparenting because if you actually look at what a child, a young child, most needs, they need to be seen. Hmm. They need 
for others to, to really get them. And they also need to be loved. And if you're seen but not loved, obviously that doesn't work. And if you're loved but not seen, you can't trust the love. And when a very young child is seen and loved, when they have the attentiveness and the responsiveness, that allows for basic trust. That gives them a sense of belonging. But most of us had, at best, imperfect (laughs) um, parenting. Uh, And whether it was our parents or the society, which, with all of its hierarchies and messages of inferiority and badness and standards that it gives us to meet, we grow up not trusting that lovability. And that's really what brought me to you know, titling a book, Trusting the Gold, because I've, I've found for myself, it's almost my go-to mantra now that when I'm really stuck or tangled, when I'm having a hard time, usually built into it, there's some sense that I'm falling short. Hmm. <laughs> and if I can even just say the words, trust the gold, there's some kindness in that reminder that there's there's a goodness underneath that I'm forgetting that I need to trust in and 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 just the kindness of reminding myself the kindness comes from the gold there's there's a beginning of a a kind of a dissolving of that whole sense of a trance of badness so back to spiritual reparenting what meditation does is it helps us trust the goodness it helps us to trust our intrinsic value and the way it does it is one, it's sometimes described as the bird with two wings, this practice of waking up with mindfulness and compassion, that one wing sees what's going on, sees as the young child needs, sees who's here, sees the conditioning and sees the goodness. And then the other wing, compassion, really holds whatever it is unconditionally with tenderness. And when we get practice, offering that to ourselves. When we can have anger come up and and mindfully see it's angry, there's anger there, just notice it, name it, this is anger, but not judge it, really just hold it with kindness. We're spiritually reparenting ourselves. We're making room for a natural inner weather system. Mm. We're befriending ourselves. And so that's that's the offering of, of meditation is that we get practice spiritually reparenting ourselves till we really um, can meet the world from a place of really trusting our lovability. Yeah. And and in your teachings, I know sometimes you'll ask uh, the the meditator to find find some kind of an image or a feeling or an experience in which we feel that 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 kind of love and for some it might be their dog right or it might be it might be the uncle that was kind or sitting by the waves there's there's ways to work with this even if someone has experienced a life of trauma or or of uh, has experienced a deficit of love that's exactly right it's almost even if there's been really no conscious feelings that somebody in the world loves us, um, we can still find a tendril of where we sense some, some energy coming towards us that's benevolent. And as you say, and you said it beautifully, it could be our dog. Uh, it could be being in nature and sensing the, something in the beauty and mystery and wonder of it that there's some benevolence that we can be held by. So we all can find pathways, but the deal is we then have to cultivate them Mm -hmm. because it's like neuropathways. It's like whatever you practice grows stronger. So if you practice judging yourself, you develop that muscle. But if you practice noticing your judging and then in some way reminding yourself through whatever means works, that there's some basic goodness there. You know, that your heart wants to love and be loved, that your your deep aspiration is to know reality, to know truth. I mean, we, we love love. We love truth. When we can remember that, it gives us, it softens us. We start sensing, oh, so there's some basic goodness there. And I can say in my own life, one of the ongoing experiments has been, so how do I reconnect with that feeling? Mm -hmm. 
and, and, you know, I can sometimes, if I'm not too far gone, you know, if I'm not totally spiraled down with the, you know, harsh critic, you know, having its hands around my throat, um, I can just call on the kindest, wisest parts of myself and simply put my hand on my heart and just say, it's okay, you know, and, and that, or, you know, tr- trust your goodness or whatever it is, or trust the gold, and that will be a pathway of feeling compassion and coming back. But I found, Jonathan, there are times I am so caught in it, so caught in that confirmed sense of something's wrong with me, mm-hmm. that I need to reach out to something that feels larger. And I often will imagine and sense a very um, luminous presence that's, that's intimate, that's near me, and that's just bathing me with care. I'll just imagine it. I'll just pretend. And the more I imagine that and have the intention to let it in, something will soften and gradually I'll start sensing that I am that loving presence. I I am the loving presence. That's more true than the stories I've been telling about myself and I'm holding the wounded younger part of myself. So I'm giving that as an example because I think it's an experiment for all of us to find our way back to love. And we've all had what I call severed belonging. We've all had experiences where we've been rejected or betrayed or in some way ignored or hurt. And so we have to bring healing and we have to find the pathways. Yeah, the mind is is so curious in, in that way in which we we cling to the wounds almost uncontrollably Th- those are what remain in the memory or you know th- lines like losses loom greater than gains and and i wonder for you as you have spent so much time steeped in buddhist philosophy h- how you've begun or how how you now understand the workings of the mind and, and why it has been so tricky for, for those of us to, to understand love or to let a sense of peacefulness in? Well, that's a deep question. <laughs> um, you know, because we are very loyal to our suffering. <laughs> yes. And yeah. we're very hooked on the stories we have about ourselves. And, you know, we, under, we can understand it through evolutionary science as the negativity bias that you know we from way way back like other animals um you know it it's for survival that we just fixate on what's going to go wrong Mm -hmm. and there's so much evidence that if we end this and and you tell me you know five things you really liked about this interview but one thing that didn't sit well you know what i'm gonna like chew on right (laughs) (laughs) okay what do i need to improve what's wrong with me you know and and so that's the way the minds go we have that negativity bias and it gets more grooved in to the degree that we don't trust ourselves we had early wounding then we are more fixated because we're trying to avoid more pain. It's like if I can anticipate mm-hmm. what's going to go around or wrong around the corner, if I can remember what's wrong with me and try to fix it, well, then maybe I can, you know, at some point not be rejected. And it's dangerous. It's more dangerous to sit in uncertainty and say, well, you know, maybe I really am okay. That's scarier to people than the certainty of here's what's wrong with me. And there's a lot of science now that shows that we will choose the certainty of very painful stories over the uncertainty of opening to the possibility that we're really okay. And once again, that was author and Buddhist teacher Tara Brock. You can hear my extended interview with her in our archives at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. And still to come, Sharon Salzberg and a trip to India that would change her entire trajectory. That's all coming up on Life Examines. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. 
Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. From Tara Brock, we'll now move to our second story of the program. If you've studied meditation or browsed a bookstore section on mindfulness, you've likely heard of Sharon Salzberg. She's been a pivotal figure in bringing Buddhism to the West. An author, educator, and co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, Salzberg's latest book is titled Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. In our conversation, she talks about a difficult childhood and how discovering Buddhism allowed her to make sense of the suffering she had experienced in life. She also ends the interview with a Tibetan parable that has stayed with me for days. All that being said, it's wonderful to have Sharon Salzberg on Life Examined. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I want to go back um, a a number of years ago uh, to some earlier parts of your life. You were 18 years old. You had actually already begun college. I I believe you started university at 16. (laughs) But but you had described that period of your life as as used a word I, I appreciate, which was fragmented. And, and I wonder if you could tell us about who you were and what it is you were looking for as you suddenly found yourself making the trip to India and to study Buddhism. Um, why don't you take it from there? Mm-hmm. Of course, that was quite a long time ago now. Yeah. You know, the years go by. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think if I were tasked with trying to describe myself in one word, at that time, it would have been fragmented. I am, by the way, a product of the New York City public school system, which I like to have people skip grades, mm. which is why I ended up in college at the age of 16. Um, and I'd had a very, like many people do, a very traumatic, difficult childhood. My parents split when I was four. My mother died when I was nine. I went to live with my father's parents, whom I hardly knew, and um, he had unbeknownst to me, some really severe mental health problems. And, you know, he came back when I was 11. So it just kept going on. And I wrote a book called Faith Once, which is really kind of about my faith journey. And uh, looking back, I realized by the time I got to college at the age of 16, I had lived in five different family configurations, and hmm. each one of which had changed or ended because somebody died or some something terrible had happened. And uh, and like for many people, my family was one where this was never really spoken about. We just didn't talk about it. And uh, I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me, which is why I felt so split apart and mm. so fragmented. And then I went off to college, and uh, by the time I was a sophomore, I had to fulfill a philosophy requirement. So I just looked at the schedule, and honestly, as far as I can remember looking back, I chose Asian philosophy because it was kind of convenient to my schedule. <laughs> right. I thought, oh, that's on mm-hmm. Tuesday. That's good. Let me do that one. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it totally changed my life. And the first way was in this way, because when the professor was talking about the Buddha and talking about suffering, as one inevitably would, and talking about the Buddha, you know, rather than finding that depressing or demoralizing in some way, I found it incredibly invigorating. It felt like maybe the first time in my life somebody was saying to me, you're not so weird, you know? Mm, mm. It's not just you. This is a part of the human condition. This is a part of life. And and it was almost like the first time I truly felt like I belonged. Mm. And I also heard in that class there were things, there were methods, there were techniques. You could do called meditation, and if you did them, if you practiced them, you could be a lot happier. And I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo. I didn't see it anywhere. This is 1970, and uh, I went off to the independent study program at the school, and I said, I want to create a project. I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. Hmm. So off I went. Wow. There's so much you said there that that I appreciated. First of all, I think it's incredible how you would become and are a very well-known teacher, but 
there's mm-hmm. a certain bit of like luck and happenstance in all of our life. For example, oh, yeah. I remember interviewing Mark Epstein, another meditation mm-hmm. teacher and, and, and psychologist, and he joked, he said, well, the first time, well, he said, I ended up in a Buddhist class because I was chasing a girl to get into the class. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I, I love that, you know, the, you and, and Mark Epstein have, have led these these wonderful lives, but sometimes it's, yeah. it's the class you walk into, the person you happen to meet that will change your life along the way, right? That's true. Actually, the person we have in com- a person we have in common um, is Dan Goldman, who, um, mm. you know, I went off to India with, with a small group of friends. I didn't know where to find a teacher. I wanted something really practical, direct. I wasn't that interested in the philosophy. I certainly wasn't interested in, like, comparative religion or adopting a new identity or rejecting anything else. And, and I just couldn't find that. That wasn't that easy to find either. Yeah. And I wandered around India in various circumstances and it not quite working. And I overheard a conversation one day, talking about luck, um, about an international Hatha yoga conference that was going to happen in New Delhi. And I went off to New Delhi and it was a terrible experience, truly. And mm. the low point of which was when these yogis and swamis were up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. Uh-huh. And I just thought, this is never going to work. And um, for some reason, Dan Goldman, who at the time was a, a graduate student at Harvard, was giving a talk at that conference. And he mentioned at the end of his talk that he was on his way to this town called Bodhgaya, which is the town that's grown up around the descendant of the tree. It said the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. And uh, he was going to do this intensive, as an attendee, he was going to he was going to sit this intensive 10-day immersion course in meditation, which was really kind of like the straight stuff. This is how you do it. This Mm -hmm. is the kind of thing you encounter. And I thought, that's it. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And it was. So, first of all, I mean, traveling through through India in the early 70s, at, at the young age that you were, must have been a, a truly wonderful and at times maddening experience. As I, I lived in India for a year when I was 22, and so I, I know what it's like. But talk to me about some of the early um, meditation experiences you had, and what you were taking in that would inform so much of your life moving forward. Well, it was so much, really. It was like a, a sense of discovery and learning that was unparalleled, I think, back to some of those conversations because the retreats were not completely silent in those days. And so the other thing, of course, was a tremendous set of friendships, which are enduring and vibrant to this day. And, Mm. you know, I can remember some of those conversations with a lot of amusement, like, and then my breath, like, started to flutter. (laughs) You know, it was like nothing, really. But, you know, it was so exciting just to observe and to learn. And and physically, it was very hard, you know, on people getting sick and um, just the conditions were, were very tough, but it didn't matter. And that was really fascinating for a Western person to see too. You know, like, look at that. You know, I actually don't need hot running water because mm. I'm happier than I was before. Did you find that thinking about a bit of the childhood that you described, which mm-hmm. I, I, I take it that that was one that was full of, of loss, probably trauma, mm-hmm. anxiety, Mm-hmm. Where did where did Buddhism and meditation begin to come in to help you maybe make sense or, or find a path forward? Well, I think it, it always made sense. I mean, even the first night of my first retreat, which was January 7th, 1971, I just was sitting there thinking, there's truth here. You know, there's truth here for me. This is hard stuff. It's not easy to do. It's not easy to sit still. It's not easy to concentrate, but there's truth here, and it's very powerful. Um, and looking at things like change, for example, the truth of change, seeing different sides of it, like there's the, of course, there's the loss and the letting go and the the movement, kind of the relentlessness of, of things being in transition. But there's also like beginnings and openings and renewal and mm-hmm. uh, starting over and, um, you know, just being able to be interested in these things and to know what I was feeling. I mean, I didn't know what I was feeling. I had never I'd never been in therapy. I'd never done introspection before. And at first it was horrifying, of course. I was very judgmental. And the first instructor I had, the first teacher, was S.N. Goenka. That was his course. And he stayed on in Bodh Gaya and did a number of successive retreats. And 
I can remember, I'm somewhat famous amongst this group of people that became my friends there, for once having marched up to Goenka and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, <laughs> thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was not, clearly it was his fault. And he just laughed. And, of course, I'd been hugely angry, but I just didn't know it. And there I was getting in touch with a lot of feeling and uh, difficult, difficult feelings and that underlying message about being kind to oneself and having some compassion for oneself also being there. Yeah, I'd love for you to say a, a bit more about this idea of of not being aware of what we're feeling, because I find that, that that's something that, that occurs in my life or so, so many others, you know, that, that we don't either have the introspection or we don't have the language or, or the time to just sit back and say, well, what is this reality I'm experiencing within myself? And I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, how you made sense of that and how meditation played a role in it. Well, meditation played the first role in it because it's how I did it, you know, yeah. uh, which would be an unusual thing, I think. But um, and partly it's also Goenka's method, which these days we would call a body scan, very much popularized by John Kabat-Zinn with mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, was you know you sweep your attention through your body, and you feel these different sensations known as interoception. Um, you know, kind of feeling the inner sensations, and those are very tied to emotion often and to old patterns that we're holding in the body. And so it was like a direct hit, you know, right there. And it was very important for me, and it is important for a lot of people. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, there's some research, although it's not exhaustive by any means, tying that ability to feel those internal sensations or interoception to empathy. Because when we're talking about not so much cognitive empathy, like I know kind of what you're going through, but that felt resonance, that felt sense of like, ooh, that likely really hurts, you know, to feel alone like that. And hmm. um, it means we are we are resonating somewhere in our body, you know, that we have that kind of mirroring going on. And so the more we can be in touch with ourselves, the easier we can access that. Hmm. You also mentioned this idea that that when you were going through those those first days and weeks of meditation, that that what came up wasn't easy to sit with. But you also had a, as I think we all do, a a very maybe a shameful or um, judgmental reaction to it. Is that right? Mm, that's right. Yeah. Can, can you talk about how that I think is is quite normal, or that that's in many ways kind of the emotional world in which we live? Yeah, I mean, I think you know. Um there's that line famously attributed to James Joyce where he said, uh, wrote, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And we do tend to be distanced either from the body and uh, the emotional component of that. And, and it's not bad, you know, like most of, I think, what we've devised, I think, has really been pretty smart in our lives. You know, like we, we figured out long ago that survival meant A, B, C. And the trouble is when it's you know now an old pattern and may not be all that useful anymore and it's certainly not useful every time. And we want a bigger repertoire of response mm. um, and to feel free and creative in, in our responses to, to things. And so, you know, we will, I think, inevitably see those old patterns come back and learning how to recognize them, see them for as meritorious probably as they once were, but also not uh, being so entangled in them, you know, that we can't think of an alternative or several alternatives as ways of responding. So what we're trying to do, I and mean, this is what mindfulness really refers to, is have a relationship to whatever we're observing that's neither like completely sucked in and overwhelmed by it or pushing against it and hating it and fearing it or as you're, adding, as you're saying, adding shame to it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is such a crucial part of, of what you've been teaching, and I, I, I'd love to explore it more, this idea that, that when an emotion comes comes into us, kind of how how we are able to both accept it and feel it, but just as you say, not be overwhelmed by it, and also be in a place of, of looking and analyzing. Um, 
you've used a line that getting to a place where the awareness is stronger than the visitor. Um, mm-hmm. Say, mm-hmm. say more about that. Well, I think the the thing we don't necessarily recognize is that the awareness is always stronger than the visitor. Hmm. Um, and it comes from uh, this image that, the say, the Buddha used where um, uh, very beautifully he said, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. So forces like greed and jealousy and envy and hatred and fear and so on. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. And as soon as I heard that that image, I really liked it because I could just imagine myself at home, like minding my own business, having a perfectly fine time, and then hearing a knock at the door. So getting up and opening the door. And so how am I with this visitor? Can I realize, first of all, it's just a visitor. It doesn't live here. That's not easy. You know, we get confused. And I see myself kind of hurling open the door and saying, welcome home, it's all yours. Mm-hmm. And forgetting, like, no, it's just visiting. And I took note, really, of the Buddha saying, it's because of visiting forces that we suffer. He didn't say it's because of visiting forces that we're bad people, that we're inevitably heading for a downfall, Hmm. that we're too weak to get on with life, you know. When we're caught in the visit, not just seeing it, but caught in it, we suffer. And when we suffer, we tend to kind of spread the suffering around, you know, so other people suffer as well, other beings suffer. And it's not that good a scene. And so it's not selfish to want to work out and away from that kind of suffering. It's actually very unselfish to want to be a different person in relationship to what we feel internally and and inevitably to those around us because of that. And so, first of all, realizing this is just a visitor, may visit a lot, you know, may visit nearly incessantly, but still just a visitor. Mm. It comes and it goes based on conditions not inherent to our being. And we can recognize that and feel empowered by that because it's true. It's that we're not just trying to make nice talk, you know, to ourselves. It happens to be true. The awareness is stronger than the visitor. Mm. And we can also recognize the suffering component because we will get caught. I mean, nobody's going to do this perfectly. And, you know, for all we use language, and I use it too this way, where we say, I want to maintain mindfulness or I want to stay mindfulness all day long. We're not going to do that. You know, we'll fall down. We have to pick ourselves up or let others help us up. We start over again. And it's just going to be that way. And so we we do pick ourselves up and we start over. and And that's like renewal and that's, that's resilience. Hmm. It, one poem I've I've often shared on this show is is Rumi's The Guest House, which you've probably mm-hmm. heard of. And and so this is this is a poet that that's coming from the Turkish area who's who's kind of making a similar statement, which is to say that you know these emotions arrive and or arrive as if to a guest house, which is us, and they come, but but they're guests, right? They're not permanent residents. They come and then they go. And it's interesting that like the Buddha says, these are these are visiting or visitors again, not not citizens dwelling within us forever. And it's it seems that there is this kind of wisdom that is that is not just in Buddhism, but in a lot of these different traditions that that share this similar philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think it is. It's wisdom, you know. You wouldn't want it to just be held by one particular angle or or vocabulary or you know. Um, tradition. It, it's really pretty universal. What I was so touched by in my own search, you know, was really kind of the methodology in, in Buddhism and the, the availability of that methodology. You know, you didn't have to be special to qualify in order to learn how to meditate. You just had to learn how to meditate. And the hard part is actually meditating, you know, and then putting it into practice. Mm. Yeah, and there's something too you said about this idea that these emotions or, or states of being are not inherent to mm-hmm. us. And you know, I, I I've been trained as a psychotherapist, and it makes me think of 
of something like cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and, and we talk about this idea there as, as something called cognitive distortions. These are the, 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 the shorthand stories we tell about ourselves, like I'm, mm-hmm. a ba- I'm a bad person, or I'm a greedy person, or I'm a jealous person. And we think that almost these are just, just as you say, inherent parts of us, but really they're not. They're the product of, of causes and conditions. They're the product of families, mm-hmm. of environments. And I think this is where you begin to see these really interesting parallels between Buddhist philosophy and, and more Western psychological fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many um, interesting parallels, and there, there's a lot of, you know, a, a very, uh, kind of the immediacy of it. It's like you can watch your mind actually create that story, mm. and that's a fascinating process. So, I mean, a story I sometimes tell is about um, teaching with my friend Joseph Goldstein somewhere, and he and I were just in the kitchen having a cup of tea, and somebody came into the kitchen in some distress and said to Joseph, I've been sitting and I had this really terrible experience. So Joseph said, well, what happened? And he said, well, I felt all of this tension in my jaw, and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people, and it's never going to change. Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? It was really interesting for me, like watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And There's a word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, papancha, which means proliferation, you know, and I heard one translator once describe it as the imperialistic tendency of mind so that something happens and the whole world is taken over. So I watched him do it, you know, and like finally Joseph said something to him like, it's painful enough to have all that tension in your jaw. Why are you adding a miserable self-image? Hmm. You know, it's like taking something that is already painful and making it worse. It's like sometimes you can just watch it. You can watch yourself construct step by step, you know, this story which then you feel locked into, but you just created it. Yeah, in, in what way do you think that using this idea that, you know, the Buddhist philosophy says, you know, we we are the product of causes and conditions. And I think mm-hmm. that that is very much, you could understand that as our environment a lot of the time. And uh-huh. how does somebody, a practitioner of Buddhism, kind of begin to pull apart these layers to understand themselves or their environment or where they come from more? I mean, this is something we think about happening in psychotherapy a lot. But, mm-hmm. but where, where do you see this in Buddhism, too? Well, that's the nature of the meditative practice. And Mark Epstein always said that he thought therapy is meditating out loud. Mm. You know, like you have this other being in the room, which is the nature of that process. And they are not judging you, and they're not belittling you, and they're not kind of fainting in shock at the things you're saying, you know. They're not frightened by you. Um, They're there as this sort of benevolent and caring presence. And... That's what we replicate inside ourselves. We also call that mindfulness. But that's, you know, it's hard for us. It's much easier to think about meditating or resolve that next year we're going to start or when we have a stress-free free life we're mm-hmm. going to start. Or It's hard to actually do. And, and But it's only in the doing of it. It's like a little bit like exercising a muscle. Um, you got to do it. One word that, that you write about a lot and that, that comes up in meditation is this idea of, of loving kindness. And for those that, that don't know exactly how that functions in, in meditation or Buddhism, maybe you can give us a bit of a, an introduction to it. Sure. I mean, loving kindness is, is uh, a quality of generosity of the heart, and it's a way of paying attention. Um, in the context of mindfulness, um, it's there, although it may not be spoken about, because it's not that easy, you know, to have... Like in my case, you know, a particular emotion I was not that familiar with, like my own anger, arise, and not to freak out about it. And so there's some component of realizing it's not just me, it's never just me, that this is part of the human condition, that I can allow myself to feel it. Um, Acting on it is a different question, but I can certainly allow myself to feel it. I don't have to be so afraid. Um, I don't have to judge myself, all of which is encapsulated in having a kind of loving attitude, which we cultivate, even if we don't know it. 
we also have this sense of loving kindness um, sometimes very purposefully. Like if you, for example, have the habit of evaluating yourself at the end of the day as though to ask yourself, how did I do today? And let's just say you have the habit of going pretty much exclusively for the mistakes you made and what you could have done better and where you fell short, and let's just say. Hmm. The process of developing loving kindness is almost just realizing all of that may be true and you don't want to be denying it, but it's not the only truth. We're never just that mistake. So can we wish ourselves well and kind of grow bigger in our perspective? We look at all the people we might tend to look through or ignore or disdain in some way. We objectify, you know, that's just the checkout person in the supermarket. And what happens when we look at them rather than through them and we wish them well? So I see the process of deepening loving kindness is, is really like this grand experiment that we make. You can do it. We do do it inevitably because I don't think you can do meditation without somehow bringing in that quality. We also develop loving kindness through insight, through awareness, realizing, wow, I do live in an interconnected universe, you know, that I feel so alone or, or even lonely, but what's the truth of things? You know, we're, we're all so intertwined. And there are meditative disciplines and methods that are pretty much devoted to the deepening of qualities like loving kindness. Well, Sharon, I, I wonder if there's any just final thoughts or stories that come to mind as we begin to close out our conversation together. There's actually a Tibetan meditation instruction. I don't use it so much as a meditation instruction, but more in this context. The instruction is that you should look at your thoughts and feelings as though you were quite an elderly person sitting in a playground watching children play. And as I said, like, I usually use it, um, you know, really in this context, whereas, you know, imagine you're quite an elderly person. It means you've lived a while, you've seen a lot, you've probably had to let go of a lot. And there you are in this playground, and you're watching this little kid completely freak out because they broke a shovel. You're not all cold and mean. You don't go up and say, hey, kid, it's just a shovel. Wait till you have a mortgage, you know, and a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're tender, you're present, you're caring, you're loving. And you don't fall down on the ground sobbing because the shovel broke. Because you know what? Shovels break. Hearts break. Bodies break. That's in the nature of things. And I realize that I, as a human being, if I were seeking help, I want both. You know, I want the ten. I certainly don't want someone really mean. You know, like I want the tenderness and the kindness, and I want the perspective. Because if somebody fell down on the ground sobbing, when I told them my story, I'd completely freak out. You know, like, mm. oh my God, you know, this is all there is. Mm. And it's not all there is. And so we um, we really need that, that. It doesn't even have to be verbal, you know, just some reminder, like, oh yeah, there's a bigger picture of life that we also fit in, and things change, and will evolve and it won't always feel exactly this precise way. And, um, and that doesn't have to be denial. That can be really right alongside the recognition of how much something hurts. And that's when we find balance. Mm. Well, my guest has been Sharon Salzberg, author, educator, and meditation teacher, and co-founder of Insight Meditation Society at, at Barrie, Massachusetts. Sharon, thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And there are so many ways to connect with the show outside of just the audio that you hear. You can find our Facebook group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, where we welcome your thoughts on today's program. Do you have a consistent meditation practice? How does Buddhism impact the way you see and understand the world? We'd love to hear from you. You can also find me on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastion. As always, thanks again for joining us. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week.